0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our series in Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 24, looking at verses 1 through 14. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. We come today to another of the discourses or sermons of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the second longest. First is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This one, well, that one had to do with the 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 law and the relationship of the Christian and the Christian life. Uh, This one has to do more with questions of eschatology, uh, from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last, eschatology having to do with study of the last things as we find them in Scripture, uh, which, as you know, is a much discussed and debated and controversial question. Uh, and, and even more confusing sometimes in that biblically, the last things doesn't always have to do with what's going to happen at the very end. In fact, Christ's coming, the resurrection and the ascension was an eschatological event. It was bringing the age to come into this present evil age. So uh, that's why the Bible can refer to the last days in a sense that includes where we are now as well, well as the time in which Paul lived. When we come to Matthew chapter 24 and 25, uh, 25 is parables uh, pointing toward our preparation for the end, but 24 speaks to some things that uh, admittedly are difficult to nail down with dogmatic certainty, Uh, speaking of events that uh, may have happened in Paul's uh, or in Jesus' Uh, between Jesus' first coming and the destruction of Jerusalem, as well as events that have yet to occur, the difficulty is sorting out what those are. And so uh, we take up chapter 24 with some degree of trepidation, and yet this is God's Word, we have God's Spirit, and let's look at what the Lord has to say to us in it. Uh, Chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, we do turn to you for wisdom, for this is your word, and you knew what you meant to say here, and the difficulty is not in your clarity, but in our fallen understanding. And so, Father, we pray for you to open our eyes to lead us in the truth. Help me, Father, to say only that which is accurate and true. And, Father, I pray that you will bless our time and study of this portion of your word in the coming weeks. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I can remember uh, when I was much younger discovering a classic on my parents' shelves. It was Hal Lindsay's, The Late Great Planet Earth. It was exciting reading. In fact, I'm not sure I slept much that night after delving into those riches. Well, I was not surprised to discover I wasn't alone in that experience. Lick Duncan, who's the pastor at First Presbyterian in Jackson, Mississippi, describes coming across a copy of that book when he was about seventh or eighth grade, was all excited about it, in fact, shared it with a Baptist friend of his who had not made a profession of faith. And the Baptist friend came back the next week, told him he'd professed Christ and been baptized. So the book has uh, certainly done some good there. That's a good thing. He went to his pastor and shared it in all excitement and was uh, somewhat dismayed to discover his pastor did not share his enthusiasm over, over the book, uh, but in fact uh, gave him a different view. He said he had, had to point out that he thought his pastor's view was much more boring than that of Hal Lindsey. And some of you, if you're looking for Hal Lindsey fireworks from Matthew 24, might be disappointed to discover that my view is probably a little more boring maybe than what you were hoping for. But as Lig Duncan uh, discovered, and I did, and I hope that you will too, that the theological truth of this passage uh, is not weighed by whether it's exciting or boring, but by what the text says. And so we trust the Lord will lead us into that we begin in verse 1 where it says Jesus left the temple and was going away. And I don't see how you can help but find something symbolic in that gesture that goes beyond simply saying Jesus has left the building. Uh, when he just before in chapter 23 had been pronouncing woes on the leaders of Israel for their hypocrisy and for their sin and the laments in verses 37 through 39 Uh, The resistance of Jerusalem and Israel to him and then says in verse 38, see your house is left to you desolate. Last week we looked at a couple passages from Jeremiah that Jesus may have been referring to. And this morning, the passage from Ezekiel indicating the presence of God going out of the temple. Well, here I think it's not coincidental that Matthew says Jesus left the temple and was going away. That there's something symbolic, something significant about that. But as they're heading out, it tells us that his disciples were quite impressed with the building, with the temple itself and the precincts. In fact, Mark 13, one tells us they cried out, look, you know, how beautiful these stones, how beautiful the building. It's not that they hadn't seen it before. It's just they, they were overwhelmed with the beauty of it. And perhaps in light of what Jesus had said, thinking, how could this ever pass away? How could this not stand forever? And so, verse 2 here, uh, as they point out in verse 1, the buildings of the temple, uh, Jesus says, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It's important to realize Jesus wasn't talking about bricks. He was talking about massive stones, some that would have been the length of this platform and just about as tall, huge, huge blocks of stone. And Jesus is pointing toward the destruction of it, as if he's emphasizing that desolation, and not just the presence of God departing, but the destruction of this temple that that, that was the epitome, not just of Jerusalem, but of Israel, of Judaism. It was a magnificent structure. Josephus, the old Jewish historian, describes it this way. He says, being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. It was a thing of beauty. The disciples are admiring it, and Jesus says, look, the day is coming when this is just going to be rubble. When there won't be one stone left on another. Now that provokes the question from the disciples that sets in motion what has been termed the Olivet discourse, because Jesus gives it on the Mount of Olives, and they would have had a clear view, looking back to the west at Jerusalem and the temple there, as Jesus talked about these things. Uh, this this object lesson right there in front of them. Now you look at their question uh, actually it's two questions, uh, possibly three, but I think grammatically we would have to say it's two the questions and they come up to Jesus verse three privately and they ask Jesus tell us you've you've made this cryptic reference to the destruction of the temple and they ask, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age so I would argue there are two questions when will these things happen the destruction of the temple and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Those two are linked together grammatically because in the disciples' mind, those two would go together. In fact, probably from the disciples' point of view, all of these went together because they probably could scarcely imagine the temple being destroyed without that signifying the end of time. Uh, the idea of the temple would be destroyed and the world would go on was uh, probably outside their thinking. But as we look at it from our point of view, uh, realizing that that was the case, the temple was destroyed and yet the world went on, uh, that we look at it in terms of two questions. When will these things be, number one? And two, what will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? Now, the difficulty as we go through Matthew 24 is determining what, what part of what Jesus says answers each question. What part of what Jesus says has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem which occurred in the year 70, A.D. 70, and what part of what Jesus says has to do with his return and the end of time, the end of the age, the the judgment. And so the difficulty is sifting through those things. Now, I want to suggest something to you. You and I don't live prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Those things may be important to understand from a historical point of view, what Jesus, if Jesus was specifically referring to that event, but for you and me living in the 21st century, that's not exactly a pressing matter in terms of living a life of godliness and faith in Christ. However, as I look at that event historically and the yet future return of Christ, and I do think the return of Christ is a future event, there are those who would argue that this return was was embodied in his judgment on Jerusalem, uh, at least partially, I would like to argue that the destruction of Jerusalem itself was a foreshadowing of the final judgment, that the events that lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem encapsulate what will happen on an even larger scale when the events leading up to and including the return of Jesus. So you could say that the destruction of Jerusalem was a small apocalypse, but the return of Jesus, which it foreshadows, will be a much grander, obviously, a cosmic apocalypse, now again, there are many different schools of thought in interpreting this dispensational and non-dispensational, and within each some variations. And in fact, people within the same schools might differ on what a particular verse refers to. But the question I want us to answer is, what does this have to say to us today and how we live in following Christ? And so, as we look at verses uh, four through fourteen, Jesus, what Jesus has to say. We want to look at several dangers that Jesus warns his disciples and warns us about. Several dangers to be on guard against uh, that have to do with living now between his first and second comings as we do. Well, what are those dangers? As so I ask Jesus these questions, he refers to some things that are apparel peril to his disciple. Well, the first thing that he mentions, the first danger is the danger of false messiahs. The danger of false messiahs the danger of being led astray look at verses 4 and 5 first thing jesus says jesus answered them see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying i am the christ and they will lead many astray and again in verse 11 many false prophets will arise and lead many astray now There were those in between the time Jesus said this and the destruction of the temple who came as false prophets uh, and, and were a danger to the people of that time. But that's not limited to that time. There's certainly plenty of people in the years since the destruction of Jerusalem who have come in Christ's name, claiming his authority, even claiming to be the Messiah themselves who have come and have led people astray. And Jesus says, be careful, be on guard, be warned in advance that this will happen. Even in our own day, uh, we find that there are those who lead people astray. And I'm not talking about leading people into a different view within Orthodox Christianity, but lead people into heterodoxy, into into, uh, heresy, Uh, Think of the Reverend Sun Young Moon of the Moonies, uh, the Moony fame, the Reunification Church, who himself claims to be the Lord of the Second Advent. He he claims to be sent to finish the work that Jesus did not accomplish. Uh, Bizarre uh, cults and aberrations like Jim Jones in Guyana back in the late 70s, which, by the way, Uh, You know, you remember some 900 people committed mass suicide by drinking arsenic-laced juice. Uh, Technically, they did not use Kool-Aid, although that's where the expression to drink the Kool-Aid comes from. He talked 900-plus people into dying for him and with him in a delusion, led astray. Uh, David Koresh, more recently, uh, seeing himself as the final prophet of the Branch Davidian cult and that standoff in Waco, But it doesn't have to be quite that bizarre. Uh, It can have sometimes a rather attractive appearance, at least on the surface. Think of the Mormons. You see their doctrines and their scriptures as improvements on or corrections to the Bible. Uh, That uh, Jesus was the Son of God, but we all are and will become gods as you dig into their doctrine Uh, and that Christianity had been corrupted by their day, and they were the uh, renewal of of real Christianity, and how the many millions that they have led astray with their pernicious teaching and undermining the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, how are we to do this? Jesus says, be alert, be aware, many false prophets, many false messiahs will come and lead astray people. Uh, Well, The best way to uh, be on guard in that way is to know the Scriptures, to know what the Bible says, to be an educated believer. You see, a nominal Christian, someone who claims faith in Christ and yet knows little, if anything, of the Bible is the Mormon's best convert is the kind of person who's likely to fall prey to a Jim Jones or a David Koresh. But the person who knows the Bible and can say, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's wrong, that's, that's false teaching, can identify that, or at least knows it well enough where if they can't even put their finger on it, they have a sense that this is not right, there's, there's uneasiness here, something's off kilter here, is a person who is able to heed Jesus' admonition to beware of false messiahs. Now, perhaps there will be an intensification of that kind of thing before Jesus returns. Uh, Either way, Jesus' instructions stand. Just, he says, see to it that no one leads you astray. Be aware. And as we know the scriptures, we're able to be on guard against that kind of thing. So false messiahs is one danger Jesus warns his disciples against. He warns us against. Another danger that he has here is that of panic over calamities. Panic over calamities. Look at... Uh, look at verse six, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings, uh, beginning of the birth pains, uh, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, certainly uh, we've had those in our day, as every generation has had wars and rumors of wars. The U.S. is involved in wars, and even where we're not, there are other wars taking place. Uh, I can remember even being back in high school, speaking of rumors of wars. The first time I really was interested in following a, uh, a political a presidential campaign, political campaign was, uh, was Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter, Uh, And I remember the saying, well, you know, if Reagan gets elected, he's going to get us into a nuclear war with the Soviets. Well, there's a rumor of war for you. Or Kim Jong-il of North Korea, who has uh, last week renounced the ceasefire that ended the Korean War, or conflict, if you like, uh, back in the early 1950s. Uh, He's renounced that. Of course, there never was a true treaty. It was just a ceasefire that's lasted all this time. But he's renounced that ceasefire as he's launching his missiles and making a lot of noise. Wars and rumors of wars. is tempting to, to panic over those things. Uh, panic in terms of despair, but also to panic in terms of, well, this must be it. This must be the end. You know, we're going to quit our jobs and go live on a mountaintop and eat beans until Jesus returns, because he's coming back this week. Uh, Jesus says, look, these are, these are going to happen. You don't panic over them. And not just that, but natural disasters he says, you know, see that you're not alone. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise up against nation. He says there will be famines and earthquakes. Famines perhaps as a result of earthquakes or as a result of drought. Uh, Jesus is saying these things are going to happen. These things will take place. And we can extend that list in our own day. Uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, global warming, Some of you remember back in the 70s. Remember when the big scare in the 70s was global cooling, the coming ice age? We're all going to freeze to death. And now it's global warming. We're all going to roast. So they just put it under the category of climate change. Whether it gets hot or cold, they're right. Um, Panic, fear. Jesus says, see that you're not alarmed. And these things will take place, wars and rumors of wars. He says all these are but the beginning of birth pains. Now there's a little bit ominous, something ominous in that is Jesus saying that this is just, you know, kind of what we can expect to intensify before he returns. Well, perhaps so. Maybe it will get worse. Maybe before Jesus comes back, these kinds of things will become more common, more frequent, closer to home. When in danger, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. Right? Wrong. How do we answer that? How do we deal with that? We go back to what we know. God is sovereign. There's nothing that happens, whether it's a war, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, global warming, whatever it is, outside of God's sovereignty. God rules. He's the God of the covenant with with Noah. You know, that season will follow season. Day will follow night, will follow day. He, he, he's still reigns, the world isn't spinning out of control. We go back to our doctrine, to our first principles, to what we know. Jesus says, see that you're not alarmed. We're not panicking like the rest of people when these things happen. We remember that God is sovereign. And so that's another danger Jesus warns us about. Certainly false messiahs with false teaching, false doctrine who could come and lead people astray. Uh, The danger of panic over various things that happen in this world that happened in their day that happened in ours and have happened over the years ever since, in between. Then there's a third danger that Jesus warns his disciples about that certainly has applied over the years and applies to us today. That danger is the persecution of Christians. And we see this in verses 9 through 14. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, as we look at these things, uh, we need to recognize that uh, this isn't the only place where the Bible warns us against the reality of persecution. Uh, 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we should not be surprised by persecution because Jesus tells us here the reality of it. I love the way uh, Bible scholar Leon Morris puts it. He says this, It's one of the things that puzzles Christians in every age that although they're doing their best to love God and their neighbor, to put into practice by ministering to whatever needs they discern and those they encounter on their way through life, that they are so often the butt of ridicule and the objects of hatred. Why is that? Well, it's because of the basis of persecution. Uh, Notice what Jesus says. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You see, the basis of persecution will be and should be because of our identification with Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. You cannot expect that the world will hate and crucify Jesus and love and embrace those who follow him who stand with Him. And you say, well, wait a minute. We love people. We love God. We try to do good to people. That's exactly right. But you see, the world in its fallenness hates righteousness. It hates God because He exposes their sin. He exposes their heart. He destroys the illusion that they have that they're okay. It's uncomfortable. It's convicting. They hated Christ because He exposed them. If you don't remember, go back and read Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. They were the elite righteous of Israel. And Jesus comes and says, you're whitewashed tombs. The very fact that you claim the name of Christ, the very fact that you do not join with the world in its sin, will bring upon you the malice of the world. It should not be because we're obnoxious. That were persecuted remember what we read earlier first peter four let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler there's a lot of difference between a murderer and a meddler but some christians have murdered and you know brought difficulties on themselves some christians are meddlers uh, are obnoxious to their neighbors uh, and come across in a way that brings offense and that brings uh dislike well that's not to be it Uh, He goes on to say, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So you see the reality of it here. You see the basis of it because of our identification with Christ. But notice the, the casualties of this persecution. Verse 10, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. One of the difficulties the early church faced was what to do with people who renounced Christ under duress under persecution, and yet want to be readmitted back into the fellowship of the church. What do you do with them? It's a tough question, especially when there were those who held fast their confession and suffered or even died for it. And there are people who renounce Christ when it hurts but come back, uh, and maybe genuinely so. Uh, that, that is a difficult thing. There were casualties, verse 10, they would fall away, uh, who betray, who name names. You know, who baptized you? Who do you meet with? We want to know. Hate one another. Uh, verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. More and more lawlessness, less willing to uh, serve, looking out more, looking out for number one, which obviously is the opposite of love. The love will grow cold. This loss of love, this lawlessness, perhaps due to false prophets. Remember First John had to do with people who, uh, said, oh, you can be a believer. That's on the inside. So what you do with your body doesn't matter. And you know, maybe some of the lawlessness came about because of these false prophets. Well, Jesus gives us the response. A couple of responses. You see this persecution, the danger. Well, what do we think about that? Well, Jesus tells us. First of all, verse thirteen, we must endure. We must persevere. You see. It, A true Christian makes a profession of faith, but a true Christian is more than just words. There has been a profound change. Saving faith endures. It perseveres. Now, what Jesus is saying here, uh, the one who endures to the end will be saved, not by merit of endurance, but because endurance proves the reality of one's faith, the genuineness of one's conversion, but nothing new. Jesus already said uh, here, that uh, brother will deliver brother over to death, father is child, children rise against their parents, have them put to death. You will be hated for all by, my, by, by all, for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10. And the stakes are high here. Second Timothy two: if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But also so is the encouragement. Hebrews 12:3. consider him, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Many a Christian was found his or her spine steeled and strengthened in persecution by the very thought of what Jesus suffered for him. You and I will never suffer anything to compare with what Jesus suffered for us. And that's what he says here. The writer of Hebrews, think about Jesus and what he suffered so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. So we do need to endure by the grace of God, by his help to stand, even when it may be difficult to do so. Whether that means, you know, being burned at the stake or being made fun of in the classroom or being shunned in the office, whatever that might be. Being shot against the wall, you know, whatever. Stand firm for Christ. And then the second thing that Jesus gives us here in the face of persecution is to remember that even in persecution, and maybe we should say especially in persecution, the gospel goes forward. Look at verse 14. And Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come That's the third time this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom has come. It came back in Matthew 4 where Jesus went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 9, Jesus was again proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. But you see, proclaim through the whole world. We don't just hunker down as a a fortress mentality to ride out the persecution. Even in persecution, we remain a missionary faith. And it says here, as a testimony to all the nations. You see, ultimately, witnessing mission work is a testimony, not first and foremost of my own religious experience, but of an act in history of what God has done in Christ, that he sent His son who died on the cross and was raised back to life, that everyone who believes in him will be saved as a testimony to the nations. And never is the testimony of the church more authentic than, than when it comes, even in the midst of persecution, even when Christians are cut down for their faith and willing to be cut down for their faith. And then Jesus says, the end will come. The end of what? The end of Jerusalem? Well, that did come. Some have argued that the whole world was the Mediterranean basin and the gospel was preached to the whole world. Uh, Paul referring to the gospel having gone to the whole world and then the end came to Jerusalem. Well, that's certainly true. And the gospel had, uh, by the end of Acts, uh, spread to much of the known world. Uh, and it was not long after that that Jerusalem was destroyed. But that's not when you and I live. The gospel's still going out. And there are certainly plenty of people and even nations, tribes, language groups that have not heard the gospel. The gospel is still going out. What we are to take away from this is that the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole world, and I suppose when the last elect, man, woman, boy, girl, believes, then I suppose the end will come, and that's exactly what I think Jesus is saying here, and at least certainly what that means for us today, that the gospel will continue to go forward until the Lord has saved every person that he intends to save, and then the end will come. So Jesus ends here on a note of encouragement. Yes, some dark things, some difficult things here, and some things that may mean hardship for us, but it's nothing Jesus didn't suffer for us, and certainly our God is in control, and yes, he is going to bring it all to a glorious conclusion. And so God's word to us this morning from this text is to endure, to persevere. Don't be led astray, but persevere in the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and be busy and the callings to which God has called you with the gifts that he has given you to be about the work of advancing the kingdom of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, and we do pray uh, that you would take your word and help us to understand it and to live by it, to be encouraged by it, because, Lord, we know that you reign. And we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.